Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. While money has been leaking out of municipal mutual funds this year, the same cannot be said for alternative products such as exchange-traded funds although we note some recent cooling, and especially separately managed account platforms, an area where we've spent much time exploring this year on Masters of the Universe. Within the SMA universe itself, though, investment approaches come in two main flavors, passive and active. We still get the question on how diverse an active manager can actually be within municipals, and to that, we would rather talk to those who think they have found the secret sauce to active muni success. Joining myself and Karen Altamirano this month is Andrew Clinton from Clinton Investment Management. As CEO and founder, Andrew is responsible for municipal bond portfolio oversight and construction, as well as setting investment strategy for the firm. He also oversees team portfolio construction together with ongoing oversight managing portfolios for high net worth, ultra high net worth, and institutional clients. Andrew, welcome and thank you for joining us this month. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So look, there's a lot going on in the markets in the broader fixed rate uh, view of things. And, and obviously, there's a lot going on in munis um, in terms of just, you know, sort of how bad August was, uh, especially with all the, um, I think, rosy anticipation uh, from a seasonal perspective that just didn't happen. But let's start like real high level and just talk about where, you know, CIM is, is looking at the globe now in terms of recession expectations, how you're feeling post Jackson Hole. Um, and, and, you know, where do you think this is going to lead us for Q4? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, it's been difficult for investors, professional and maybe less sophisticated to navigate with all the different levels of information and data that's coming out. You can pretty much create your own narrative uh, around whatever you might be hearing on any given day. We've had a view for some time going back to the fourth quarter of last year than what we were seeing in terms of the Fed action, as well as the likely response to that, both domestically and, ge and politically, excuse me, not geopolitically, pardon me, globally, um, you know, as we're seeing what's happening with other central banks, the outcome seems very clear to us, right? When you tighten financial conditions to the degree that which they have, the outcomes are fairly consistent over time, right? They don't result in considerably tighter financial conditions that results in less borrowing, that results in the depreciation of assets over time, depending on which, if you're looking at hard assets versus financial assets, but we know the outcomes. The outcomes are slower economic growth. So we've been talking with our clients and investors for some time about the prospect of thinking about investing consistent with your investment horizon, right? We've yeah. gotten caught up in this view that, you know, the rise in rates is very attractive because it's created yield and fixed income broadly, but in cash in a way that's never been there before. So everybody's really safe and cozy and warm in their, their money market funds or their T-bills or whatever they own. And what we're talking about today with clients is saying, look, last year, 2022, was the year of duration risk, right? It was, it was the, air, the time when you didn't want to be long duration. Well, this year is the year of reinvestment rate risk, right? Folks are comfortable in short-term cash, but they're giving up carry by virtue of not being further out the curve, right? We can talk right. about this a bit more, but the, the inverted nature of the treasury curve that doesn't exist to 30s, actually the positively sloped nature of the muni curve, is presenting opportunities that clients are just not appreciating. So that's really what we've been talking about broadly. 
Interesting. Well, I mean, that brings up a broader question, right? When you talk about reinvestment risk within the municipal set, right? Uh, I mean, are you advising any clients to sort of stay within a specific coupon structure? Because you did note that 2022 is a year of duration extension. And I feel like a lot of folks found out about convexity the hard way. No question. Uh, folks realize what a two coupon does versus a five coupon, right? And the, that yeah. uh, depreciation and that value was really shocking to a lot of clients. We're still dealing with it now. I mean, there's still substantial discounts out there in the three and four percent range still that are frightening to clients to understand. And you've got the minimus issues, which not to go down that rabbit hole, but the reality is that negative convexity was really shocking to a lot of folks. Having said that, positive convexity is the name of the game right now. So in that context, you know, we as an active manager are very much focused on taking advantage of the opportunity set that the, that the marketplace provides you. And in our market today, we're seeing something I literally have not seen in the 30 years I've been managing municipal fixed income, and that is an inverted curve between twos and twelves, right? Yeah. The reality is that you can actually you're giving up yield to extend duration, which is not foreign to the treasury market, but it is to the muni market, right? Most people in the muni yeah. market tend to buy and hold. They want higher income for a shorter period of time, which tends to keep the muni curve steeply sloped. Yeah. Uh, this time is different. However, there's a lot of demand. And historically, that's not been the case. As, you know, There's always been demand, but not as much as we're seeing right now. Between three and 10 years, the intermediate demand has really been so powerful. This has effectively made that area of the curve extremely rich. Right. And the outlook for that area of the curve in terms of total return, which is what we care about, is quite poor, relatively speaking to more of a barbell strategy. Right. You can you can extend out beyond 12 years right now and pick up yield. Right. Extend duration. You get paid for the risk of extending duration, even though in the Treasury market, you have to give up yield for that same privilege. Yes. Right. So so munis are extremely compelling in long duration. And that's what we're saying to clients. Look. We have a credit strategy today. Our credit strategy is delivering a yield of around 4.3 to 4.4% tax-free. That's taxable equivalent of roughly 7.5%, mm -hmm. right? So folks who are comfortable in a 5% treasury bill or 5.5% treasury bill or money market fund, you name it, they're still giving up carry, right? They're still giving up a couple of hundred basis points of cash flow by not extending out the curve. And if you agree, and, and we all can maybe have this view because now everybody's coalesced around this notion that the Fed has likely reached peak rates, then there isn't further rate increases that we need to wait for, right? Yeah. If you, could, you could actually make the strong argument uh, that rates have already peaked. They peaked in October of last year. Yes, we revisited that peak about a week and a half ago, or about a week ago, right? But now here we are today, the 10-year Treasury is approaching a 410, right? So. That, that volatility is such that we're telling clients, look, we know what happens when the fixed income market figures out that rates are no longer going up. The next shoe to drop is that, oh, rates are coming down. I yeah. don't own enough long duration assets. And then all of a sudden the curve is going to shift dramatically. Yeah. So that's why duration matters right now. Well, it's interesting. Karen and I were actually talking about this earlier. Um, you know, we were sort of joking about peak rates and how you know the peak keeps on coming right like you said it's sort of you know we thought we were there last year and kind of like what were you like yeah what were i you mean you kind of like stole where, where we were going next with this but yeah you know the question yeah. was going to be you know a lot has been said about the term peak rates and whether you think rates are gonna on a gonna peak again so you you feel that we are there now yeah, I think it's, you know, sorry to steal your thunder, um, but I, it's, it's yeah. a relevant and important question, right? Because so here's where we start talking about trajectory and investment horizons again. And this is the point that we're trying to compel investors to think about now. 
regardless of where you are, if you're in a short duration asset, the question then becomes, at what level of interest rates do you actually think you're going to be reinvesting at if you wait for that instrument to mature? Or if you're in cash, where's rates going to be 12 months from now? Where are they going to be 12, 24 months from now? It's extremely unlikely they're going to be higher, and it's extremely likely they're going to be lower. So that's the reinvestment rate risk we're talking about. And what we like to tell clients, look, this is your 1980s moment. Right? You go back to 1982, you can invest in money market funds at 23%. Or you can invest in a 10-year treasury at 12%. I cannot tell you how many investors I run into on a day-to-day -day basis who remembers the 80s, was investing during the 80s, saying, yeah. I was a fool. I stayed in 23% money market funds when I should have been loading up the truck on 12% tax rate, I mean, 12% 10-year treasuries. So, um, and so that's the point that we're making, saying, hey, look, don't get seduced by short-term because it's not going to last. And isn't that the risk of munis though, right? If we, if we load up the boat on long duration munis and we are at the peak, right? Isn't the risk that they're just going to get called away from me, you know, two years from now, one year from now. So you know, my duration really isn't all that much duration, but I guess it's a good thing, right? Cause you make the argument that you're, you're, you're taking sort of a shadow duration risk. that's not really there. So it's an interesting point that you make because it really distinguishes the two different mindsets in our marketplace between a passive approach that thinks about buying a bond and never selling it and holding it to maturity, and we're having it called away throughout the life of the security, and an active approach that's really focused on delivering total return, right? Not just the cash flow, which now we can say that will likely represent the majority of one's return over time for sure, but there's the duration component again, right? And so here, we like to use the example from a duration component that really gets people's attention, and especially at this very moment. Historically, on average, over history, the return of the 10-year treasury 12 months following a Fed rate pause is what? 18% positive return is the answer to that question. That's the average return on a 10-year treasury going back over all prior rate cycles. When a Fed pauses 12 months later, the average return is 18% positive on a 10-year. It's 28% positive on a 30-year treasury following a 12, 12 months following a plan rate loss. So that's the kind of point that we're trying to make to investors today, saying, look, the, the return opportunity in fixed income is like nothing most folks have seen in their investing experience, right? Going, You have to go back to the financial crisis, 08, 09, to have a similar like uh, return trajectory. And that's what we're really trying to say. So to your point about calls, it's important, right? Thinking about your exposure to reinvestment rate risk is not just maturity, but it's also, hey, the bonds get called away and now I have to reinvest at a lower interest rate environment. We're saying yes, but the benefit of being an active manager is that, that what we're doing is we're constantly monitoring the portfolio structure year in and year out, right? So you buy a 10-year bond, you hold it for a year, well, now it's a nine-year security, a nine-year call, pardon me. A year from then, it's an eight-year call. A year from then, it's a seven-year call. There's no requirement that you have as an investor, the beauty of the negotiable instruments that we manage, that you hold that forever, right? We would say just the opposite, right? Let's say that I'm right or that we're right in terms of our view and that rates come down precipitously as we expect over the next 12 to 24 months. And let's say that our returns for our clients are significantly positive, not just the cash flow they've gotten, but principal appreciation as well. Well, the good news is they now have an embedded gain. Most clients would say, well, I don't want to sell that bond, even though I have a gain in it, because I'm going to be giving up the cash flow. 
right? That tax-free cash flow is there, and I want to keep that forever. We're saying to the clients that that reflection in market value appreciation is already incorporating a lower interest rate environment. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to capture that gain. You want to harvest that gain, because if you don't, it's absolutely guaranteed to go away as that bond amortizes to par over time. Yeah. Right? Well, so, it, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, if the Fed has anything to do with it, we can use some of those gains to offset the equity losses that are they'd, they'd like to see embedded in portfolios. <laughs> Right. No, that's a fair point. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and it gets, it's funny you mentioned that too, because that gets back to the overriding theme, right? Is that let's go back in history and think about prior periods of, of, of rate hikes, right? So we all know what this one is, but what we didn't really talk about, which I think is amazing that it seems to be escaping the narrative right now, is that just a couple of months ago, we were talking about the intransient nature, the embedded nature, the stickiness of inflation, right? A year ago, we were, we were vanquishing the word transitory from the, the Wall Street lexicon, right? You were not yeah. allowed to even utter that term. And yet, if I had told you a year ago that by July of this year, you would actually see inflation down almost 70% year over year, most would say that's somewhat transitory or even meaningfully yeah. transitory, right? And we know that that number is heading down with a high degree of confidence because we know ownership equivalent rent is heading down, and that's a third of CPI over the next, you know, six sure. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Stick, sticking with that topic, you know, coming out of Jackson Hole, the tone was that the Fed will not be happy until things break in the market. What? No, what they definitely want to break things. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think has the best chance of breaking? Is it going to be housing, wages, jobs? So it's a great question. Uh, again, I'm giving you a lot of compliments for questions. Um, there's because it, it requires Keep thought, right? They're welcome. Yeah. The the reality is that. Something already broke, right? The, the 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 regional banking system is already broken, right? And it's not improving from here, right? We just saw another another bank fail recently, without naming names, right? This is there's a number of banks that failed. We we learned that SVB yeah. at the very beginning was oh don't worry about it, it's idiosyncratic, right? It's the the the, the signature bank was oh don't worry about it, it's a it's a it's a, um, a crypto bank, right? Oh, don't worry about Credit Suisse. That's been happening for some time. It's it's constantly, you know, here's what's in my hand over here. Don't pay attention to what's mm -hmm. over here. Bernanke was famous for saying, if you don't have a healthy banking system, you don't have a healthy economy. And the yeah. reality is we simply don't have a healthy economy. We've got two consecutive months of below 200,000 job, job gains. We That's down from half a million in January, right? The trajectory is decidedly down. And there's nothing, I mean, nothing that's going to change that trajectory, especially with the student loan borrowing that's now going to have to be paid back starting yeah. in October. I mean, the estimates are $200 billion in debt service that's going to be redirected toward payment of actual loans as opposed to spent largely in uh, whether some refer to it as the fun and game segment of the economy. It's leisure yeah. and entertainment. You know, it's travel. It's, it's things of that sort, restaurants, you name it. So... That's going to be very painful. We're seeing it in the outlook from a lot of the retail sales earnings that are coming out right now from the specific uh, corporations themselves, whether it's Foot Locker, whether it's Dick's, it's, it's uh, Best Buy today. I mean, you, you can't swing a cap without hitting some folks that are concerned about the consumer going forward, and we don't blame them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to have a direct impact on, on munis, which I think is, is a good way to sort of bring the conversation you know, back in, into our market directly. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks who, who may not be familiar with your firm. Um, you know, we, we have the fortunate um, luck of, of, of being familiar with you guys. 
you know, tell us a little bit briefly about CIM and, and just some of the you know solutions that your firm offers, just so people can have a better sort of perspective on who is this guy prognosticating about the market right now. So thank you very much. Uh, we admit it that we are a boutique manager. We don't hide from that. Um, it's the benefit of our our size actually that gives us advantage, right? A lot of, we get the question a lot from both advisors and clients and institutions saying, well, how do you compete with large institutional managers? And we simply say, take a look at the track record, right? If if there is an advantage to being large, it will be evident in the performance. And what we've seen over the course of our history is that's simply not the case. We've consistently outperformed peers and benchmarks. Um, and it's evident to us that we have advantage, a competitive advantage of being smaller, right? The beauty is that we're not, we have the luxury of not being the market, right? If we were committing tens of billions of dollars, it's very difficult for a portfolio manager, even the best portfolio manager, to reposition a portfolio of that size very, very in a significant way over a short period of time without disrupting the market, right? To, we all understand that munis can at times be fairly illiquid, and, and the problem is that creates disruption and can also be disrupting to the underlying portfolios. We don't have that problem. We have the luxury of being able to make tactical changes within portfolios. We have the ability to take credit positions in portfolios uh, that would maybe otherwise be dismissed by much larger managers. So what makes us unique in the context of the strategies that we offer, we offer a number of them, but our two flagship strategies are uh, market duration intermediate total return strategy, which is really emphasize a full yield curve approach, right? We're not, we're, even though we're intermediate duration, we're not constrained to simply one to 15 years like a lot of the passive strategies might be. So that's a good, that's very good news in an environment like this one where we're arguing you really should own very, very little of the three to 12 year area of the curve given the curve inversion right now and the yeah. likelihood that you're going to be rolling up the yield curve, 100%. which is bad, right? Yeah. As opposed to rolling down the yield curve. And then our credit strategy, which incorporates credit. Right. By definition, municipal bonds are generally, and so I'm going I'm to shock you all right now and say this, um, munis are generally perceived as a safe asset class. Right. Um, it's shocking to learn, I'm sure. But the reality is most investors don't recognize how safe. Right. So we're saying, hey, look, if you look across the entire investment rate spectrum, what you end up finding is the default experience in the AAA category of munis over the course of history compared to the BAA category of munis, of course, history are roughly the same. It's almost never. Right. And for our clients, it is never. We've never had a default in any strategy ever. Yeah. So from that perspective, we're saying, hey, look, we can deliver higher yields with that without assuming more default risk or credit risk. Um, and that's benefit to the client, especially if they have an investment horizon that's longer than five or 10 years. Right. Yeah. Because it's over that time frame we see the best returns for clients. Yeah. I mean, let, let, let's sort of dive into that a little bit more. Right. You, know, you talk about being like a, a credit market. Where are you seeing sort of the pitfalls here, especially since we started off the conversation focusing on how poorly the economy is doing, right? So that adds a lot of sort of nuance to the conversation of how you're actually defining credit and, and looking at credit when it comes to portfolio construction. Right. So so within our intermediate strategy, it's investment rate only. So so from that perspective, it's really only going down to the tri triple B minus or BAA three category. And so that's what okay. we consider sort of the credit spectrum. Within our credit opportunity strategy, we consider the entire spectrum of credit with the exception of one category, and that is the unrated or non-rated segment of the marketplace. Okay. So if you go back over history, um, what you'll end up finding is that the majority of defaults in the municipal bond market tend to happen in those areas that traditionally are associated with project finance and often are non-rated. 
right? You look at the more recent evidence of that. We've seen it with the uh, the Arizona Stadium uh, default, right? I mean, these are these are unrated securities. Yeah. Typically, that's evidence of a, a, a distress situation going in. If the sure. entity itself doesn't seek out a rating or is concerned about the rating they might get if they even got one, that should tell you something about the underlying. So we, in our strategies, have no exposure to non-rated securities for that reason. So what we try to do is we try to deliver above average returns relative to peers and benchmarks, as I said, and exceeding expectations around those views but without taking undue risk. You mentioned uh, barbell strategies earlier, and I know that can mean different things for, for different investors. How are you defining this? So barbells can be expressed in a couple of different ways, right? A traditional way of, you know, well, let's go back a step and say, but the traditional ladder strategy is equal positions across the curve out to some specific maturity constraint. Uh, let's say it's 10 years, let's say it's 15 years. Every single position is the same size. A barbell strategy would be where you actually have a higher weighting at the long end of that range and the lower end of the at the, sh the shorter end of that range and underweight everything in between. Um, that's one way to express it. There's another way to express it because you can do it in the context of duration, which is a bit more complex because the effective durations on the bonds can give you the same exposure and avoid that area of the curve that's most likely to underperform. So what I what do I mean by that? Buying a five percent coupon with a, let's say a three year call still has roughly a, a three-year duration, right? Even though you're taking three-year exposure. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I may not like the three-year area of the curve from a, from a total return perspective, but I like the three-year duration because I need to still maintain my duration target relative to benchmark. So if I want to be biased long relative to my benchmark, that's great. That's what I'm going to do. But that doesn't mean we're going to go out and you know, buy 30-year zeros that have a 30-year duration mm -hmm. and with a, with a benchmark of, let's say, seven. Right, that would be inappropriate in terms of a risk exposure that we would take within portfolios. So, so we do it within the context of structure. Right, we take a duration exposure based on structure, and therefore avoid those areas of the curve. And we can actually pick up yield by doing that. Right, because you're you're getting the effective duration of a short-term bond by virtue of the shorter call and premium coupon. Because as bond as the yields fluctuate, the bond's duration and sensitivity change in its rates is the same as the three-year duration but you get the yield of a longer duration asset, right? So it's really the best of both worlds, which is why we, we see value in it. How flexible are you guys when it comes to the front end of that barbell, right? One of the things that we've been, you know, sort of hammering on all year is that there comes a time from a ratio perspective where munis just don't make any sense, right? And, and inflexible managers, I feel like, are at a competitive disadvantage in this market because, like it or not, treasuries just make the most sense. Um, so, I mean, are, do you guys have that, that sort of same ability to pivot between taxable options and exempt options? And, Cause I know it's a hard concept for investors to get their mind around, right? Like, yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm in an exempt strategy. Why, why am I paying taxes? Yeah. So, so we are, we're pretty pure when it comes to what we do we, in, in the sense that if we think that on the, the front end of the yield curve is unattractive, we simply won't own it. And if, if the clients say to us, Hey, look, I have to own something that matures in the next five years, we'll tell them very candidly, well, good, go to treasuries. That's where you should be. You should be in taxable yeah. treasuries. We would probably make the argument you should be in taxable munis because the yeah. spread relative to corporates and, and the same credit rating and relative to treasuries is way better. Um, which we also offer, incidentally. I'm sure you wouldn't be shocked to hear that. So, um, so yeah, right. There's the plug, shameless plug. But um, but the reality is that's still something we would recommend, right? So yeah. so we do have that flexibility, but there are times where we say, look, you just shouldn't own it at all, right? You just shouldn't own 
two to, to you know two to five year munis because those are going to underperform and the ratios to your point are just not attractiveness to compensate you. Yeah, I mean, let's put some numbers around that when you talk about that underperformance, right? And just to give people some context, like I have the IN Go function up on my screen right now, and I'm just looking at, you know, let's say duration returns for muni indices. So long munis, that LM22TR index, which is the longest bucket, they're up 2% this year. Um, The AG, which has a duration of like, let's say five, you know, you're only up one and a quarter percent. So significant outperformance for that duration, underperformance on that shorter duration. But I want to sort of even go into credit because I think that's a more interesting play. And, and I want to sort of explore that a little bit more. Triple B munis, they're outperforming triple A's by 250 basis points. That's right. pretty wild, right? And that's been a winning trade over the last several years. I mean, do you think that that's going to run out of steam at any time that low credit, long duration play? So, so the, the, it's a challenging question to respond to because historically what we've seen over the last decade or more is that BAA-rated securities outperform AAA and AA and single-A-rated securities over time, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's higher yield relative to bonds that don't default, right? So in that context, yeah. we see great value in them. In the SMA space where we live, you, you may know this, uh, there's very few managers that do what we do. Most are single A or better. If not, you know, maybe if they're if, if they're wild and crazy, they incorporate single A's, but most are double A or better, right? It's it's a space that generally speaking makes clients feel comfortable. They think about munis as an asset class that helps them sleep at night. And we're we're saying, no, 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 it's not the asset class that helps you sleep at night. Hopefully it's the manager you're working with that helps you sleep at night. Or right? a combination of both, right? <laughs> right, true. The I mean, the historical, the, the historical right. default statistics really speak for themselves, but I mean, it seems like it's like it's sort of this low credit trade, long duration trade for the last three years. It, it seems like it's like in Super Mario Brothers, you just keep hitting that block above you with the jump and coins keep coming out because if you were just in that, I mean, you've outperformed almost everybody. Um, it's like, I think it's people who've gotten like too creative with, credit and moved in and out too much. I think they've gotten burned the most, but. I, I think what's happened is, you know, the, the muni market is, um, it, it's a very conservative market by definition. The, the, and the investors within it dictate that, right? Which we understand. And it's what I know and it's what I understand and what makes me comfortable. That's not always necessarily what's in your best interest, right? And so we as an active manager are saying, look, let us lay this out for you. Let us describe what types of risks that you're taking. Let's, let's help you understand what the actual return opportunity is. And then let's, come, let's arrive at a solution that's best for you. So, so ultimately, what we, we try to learn from the market. As, I started, as we started the discussion, we, we try to think about in the context of what the market is offering you. Well, guess what? Prior to 08 or 09, the, the, the credit market in munis primarily didn't exist, right? It literally did not exist. You had MBIA, you had Fidget, FSA, AMBAC, yeah. Radiant Insurance, XLCA. They all had an important role to play, and they were, yeah. they were effectively wrapping almost 70% of the marketplace with insurance, which kept spreads on anything that wasn't wrapped very, very tight. Right, And we're so deeply grateful that that is no longer the case, and yeah. the spreads are now very wide again. Right, That doesn't necessarily mean you should own all high-yielding debt all the time. Right, So from our perspective, just to give you an indication, Within our credit strategy, we're generally up in quality right now, right? Right now, we have an average credit quality of single A rated. We have the ability to go deeply into to the, the high yield category. The reason why we're not is, number one, because you get really attractive compensation by, by not doing that, even though you, you don't have to take that risk. And the other view is that we expect spreads to widen. As the economy continues to slow, as, the, as, the, as what we expect will be the recession takes hold, 
spreads will widen. That will happen for a couple of different reasons, right? It will happen because you'll have a credit event, another event like we described and that might re require or maybe assess from investors' perspective the need to have a, a, a larger risk premium, right? And so spreads oh, will I like wide. this. You're talking like black swan type stuff? or uh, well, It doesn't need to, need to be a black swan. It just <laughs> needs to shake people a little bit and wake up. And, and All right. Be a, yeah. And then there's the other scenario, which we think is the more likely scenario, because you know, when it comes to munis, right? This, um, I know you've spoken to other speakers as well. I've heard them, and they and I share their view, which is that the municipal asset class, broadly speaking, from a credit perspective, is very, very stable, right? It's literally the best I've ever seen in my career. If you look at general fund balances, record levels. If you look at rainy day fund balances, it's record levels, right? They, they took in more tax revenue during the pandemic than they did prior to the pandemic. They get, took in almost 25% more tax revenue in 21 than they did during the pandemic. And they were given a half a trillion dollars from taking in a record amount of tax revenue. Right? I want so to yeah, interject yeah. on that point, though, because that's that's very interesting you said that. I shared a report with Karen this morning um, from Pew Trust, and they put out this report. Um, and essentially, the, the gist was pandemic aid increased the share of state budgets to like all time highs. Right. So as that peels back. Right. And as that money sort of siphons off, I mean, don't you think that's going to put them in a worse position? I understand that you feel like it's in a great spot now. I don't disagree. My worry is what it's going to look like 24 months from now, because that takes everything a long time to sort of work out in a credit cycle in our market. Yeah, it's, and, and to your point, I don't disagree. So if okay. you're asking me if I expect credit quality to improve from here, it <laughs> is hard to imagine how that's possible. Okay. It's literally the best it's ever been. It's probably the best that it will ever be. Having right. said that, we also know that they're sitting on, and this is not our estimate, we've heard this from S&P, they're sitting on roughly $250 billion yeah. of unspent stimulus slash American Rescue Plan money. Right? Yeah. That's that's a couple of years of operating revenues, even if they were, let's say, asleep at the switch and not managing their expenses with their revenues, which we know they, yeah. 40, you know, nine out of 50 states have balanced budget amendments, so they will. Yeah. State and local governments have the tools necessary to make difficult choices. We know they generally don't like to make difficult choices and it typically takes a crisis for them to do it, but they do, right? They've yeah. gone through re recessions, very severe recessions in the past and yeah. they'll successfully navigate this one as well. Um, but so to your point, we're not necessarily saying that, that we're gonna see substantial upgrades from now until the cows come home. What we're suggesting is that yeah. it's gonna remain stable. It'll be difficult and there will be instances of credit deterioration for those smaller municipalities that may not be as, let's say, fiscally conservative, but we're fairly comfortable with the broader theme of stability within our market. We're not expecting a significant increase in defaults. And, and only we can say that because we've gone through a number, and I've been through a number of recessions where we've seen, even in very severe recessions where state and local governments were, at, were not as well prepared, right? We're not as flush with cash. And they yeah. were managed, managed to navigate those experiences as well. So we feel pretty confident about this one also. You know, it's interesting. We, we were looking at a heat map earlier. And on a historical basis, August has really been a good month for munis, right? Over the last, let's say, 22 years, there's only been six years of negative returns in August. Not that much. What's more interesting, four of them have come in the last four years, 2023 included. So that's really kind of surprising. It's like almost like it's something has changed with the pandemic that August is now sort of this horrible Ides of March period for, for the muni market. And, you know, I, I think that sort of gives into the what Karen and I were discussing earlier about summer technicals, right? Like, can we count on them? 
Yeah, I think I think what we've seen over the last few years is that the market is becoming more sophisticated, right? People are becoming more aware of the seasonality of the municipal bond market. Historically, we typically know that there's a lot of inflows during the, the June, July, August period, the January, February, March period, right? And we know there's less flows during the September, October, November period, right? And so historically, what we're starting to see is, is you know, clients and managers being more aware of that. And so less driven to buy at the end of August when they know that September is coming, right? And there might be an opportunity for an increase in, in supply to take advantage of, of some weakness. Um, we would argue that ultimately, you know, we're we're talking about, you know, the icing in the cake at this point, right? Well, while clients could get a better deal, let's say in September, when there's no certainty around that, it really depends on the notion that there's going to be a lot more supply that's going to put pressure and there won't be demand to support it. That yeah. may not be the case. Our concern is this, right? We often talk about bull markets and fixed income taking the stairs. Uh, excuse me, it's bear markets taking the stairs and bull markets taking the elevator down when rates fall. And the last couple of days are a good example of that. You know, clients could be sitting there waiting for the exact right moment to get into fixed income and rates can move 20 basis points in a day and a half, which we've yeah. seen in the last couple of days, right? I mean, that's, and then it moves another 30, 40, 50. And if you're just thinking about getting into the market and transitioning, it takes time to build portfolios. It takes time to identify securities and, fit and structure a portfolio optimally. So we're saying, hey, look, try not to time this market. You're already getting equity-like returns from the cash flow alone, right? So 7.5% taxable equivalent return that we're delivering in our credit strategy today, that's close to equity-like just in cash flow. Yeah. Right. And if rates fall dramatically, as we expect them to over time, the return on total from a total return perspective is going to be even greater. So, yes, maybe there's a chance that rates could rise another 10 or 15 basis points from here. We're not smart enough to know. All we're suggesting is there's great value today. Don't waste time. Start now. Right. And we're, we're trying to compel clients to do just that. So it sounds like you're feeling relatively you know, positive about the market. The time is now to kind of step back into munis. Um, you're feeling pretty positive about credit. So what challenges do you see for munis for the remainder of the year, um, especially now that reinvestment is, is season is now behind us? So we could see, you know, and maybe it'll be temporary, just, you know, maybe hopefully just September. But but what do you what do you expect? What challenges do you see for munis for the remainder of the year? So our, our biggest fears live in two different places. The first is sort of the obvious one, which is, all right, what could cause our optimism and our constructive outlook for fixed income specifically, but munis in particular, to go completely wrong, right? And the, the reality of that is it's an extremely unlikely scenario, but it's a scenario where the Fed, let's say, wakes up tomorrow morning or very much in the near term and decides to start cutting rates extremely aggressively, very rapidly. Right. Um, they promised us they're not going to do that. Right. We got Jackson Hole to affirm that, hey, they're going to keep rates high for a long period of time. They're going to wait for the, the inflation rate to get maybe as close as possible to two percent. I would argue they're almost there. Right. You're at three percent CPI already. You're only 100 basis points above their target. And they're not even cutting rates at this point. They haven't even paused officially yet. Right. So so the reality is we think it's a very likely scenario. And it's important to distinguish between these two views that, that when people talk about soft landing, hard landing, uh, we want to make sure that we define that properly. Soft landing, as we look at it, is no recession, right? It's not a mild recession because a mild recession is still a hard landing, right? Mild recessions are not good, right? Anybody who thinks that a mild recession is a good thing, just go back to the last one in 2000, 2001. You had a three-year bear market in equities after that mild recession. 
So, so, so the folks are talking about soft landing are calling for something that's only happened once in history. That's not how we invest, right? That's not how our clients want us to invest. They don't want us swinging for the fences and hoping something that never happens will happen this time. Also, yeah. if you go back to the one time it happened, it was during the Greenspan um, days, and he was already aggressively cutting interest rates because he had re realized that he had gone too far, right? Yeah. This fact seems very deliberate in their action. So we're not worried about that. The, the other concern as we think about from the perspective of, you know, not fear necessarily, but opportunistically, what we're concerned about for investors is what's been lacking from the muni market year to date, which is retail participation. Right? Yeah. We had record outflows in munis last year, over $140 billion flowed out of open-end funds last year. It was very difficult for the broader market to digest. Thank goodness the SMAs like ourselves and others were uh, fortunate to be a part of that uh, on the other side of that. We were grateful. But at the same time, retail is largely not back. Right? If retail wakes up one of these days, and I don't care what day it is, tomorrow, next week, next month, and says, oh, I don't own enough munis, there are not enough bonds to buy. Yeah. We're, 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 we're struggling right now to find enough securities. We're fortunate that we've been able to, as a smaller manager, identify deals and opportunities. But if everybody decides to come into this market very quickly, the ratios that we see right now could go even lower. Right? How, are you, how are you measuring retail not participating? Because that's an interesting point, at, right? Yeah, we're we, looking at it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. No, go I, ahead. I was just, just going to say that we, we kind of look at it in terms of how retail is changing, more so not participating, right? So yes, we hear anecdotally from retail desks that they're slower, without a doubt, right? Um, but if there are more retail participants in the markets going into ETFs and SMEs, I would say that they're just coming in in different ways rather than holding individual bonds themselves, perhaps? I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're looking at it incorrectly. No, I, don't, I think it's fair to say, I'm not saying they're not participating at all, right? Yeah. What we're saying is, historically, we see the significant moves in the market during periods when there's significant inflows and open-end funds. Correct. They're, simply, they're yeah. simply not happening at this point, right? We've seen seven or eight billion in outflows this year. Um, yes, there's continuing flow into SMAs, which has been healthy, and, and to, a lesser, to, to a lesser extent, I think, to the ETF side. The ETF um, flows have really been more platform-related. Right. If you think about it, it's really from the top of office, the CIO office making strategic asset allocations. One hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So, um, so from that perspective, what we're what I'm suggesting is that the retail investor who will drop a ticket into a into an open end mutual fund is the client who's largely been absent, and so yeah. that's what we're we're really thinking about. Do you think there's a like a mind shift as far as like you know, we talk about sort of value proposition with? Um, you know, higher dollar things in people's lives, like higher education, right? There's, a, there's a sort of like this like shift in how they sort of view spending lots of money for things they previously didn't think of. Do you think that same applies to investing for some people now that they just don't want to pay 60, 70 basis points for a mutual fund when they can get 80, 90% of that performance in something that costs significantly less? Yeah, we often talk about fees, as you can imagine, on our yeah. side as well. Um, and we talk about it in the context of what you're getting for the value, right? 100%. So, I get that. Right? Yeah. So, so as a professional manager, and, and this won't surprise anybody either, we're not the lowest fee in the marketplace, yeah. right? Nor, nor will we be, right? Because we still believe that there's value and we can see it. And we're not the only manager that outperforms over time, right? There are investors who simply don't want outperformance, right? Some investors say, hey, look, I've got enough money. I want to preserve the capital I have, and I just want a consistent cash flow on that capital. Yeah. Um, 
for those clients, passive strategies make a lot of sense. Yeah. I've only met one client in my entire career who has said, hey, I've got enough money. I don't need more. I get that you could actually add more value, but that suitcase full of cash that you're offering me on the table, I don't need it. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. So most people understand more. Uh, most people can see that in the context of the actual uh, returns that we deliver versus passive strategies, right? And so that's what we talk a lot about empirically. What do total return, so like very good managers return for you versus, so what are you getting for what you get? Yeah. And so that's really where we're focused. So we're talking about recession. Um, and, and this is an area that's absolutely fascinating to me as far as like, what are the actual shakeouts of the pandemic and a recession going to be on our market? long-term because i think it's very cloudy to sort of parse out right now what the muni space is really going to look like from a credit perspective five years down the road um you know karen and i have some thoughts on that we'd love to hear your thoughts on that on where you think would be the the big let's say losers and winners as far as you know where you think the better areas of of credit would be if we go into a recessionary period that's prolonged yeah, I think it's it's hard to say with certainty, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of change that has taken place since the recession, a lot of sort of pain points that have been revealed, which we, we generally already know, which is the depth of our market is changing, right? Where the actual sources of capital from are, are changing as well. So from the perspective of, of the way the market is changing, we're seeing more and more power and influence from the buy side, whereas the, the sell side, typically we're more committers of capital and would provide a a, a narrowing of bid to offered spread. We're finding that more so on the on the the buy side. Ultimately, um, I'd like to see a little bit of that come back, right? Like we'd like to see yeah. the dealer community more engaged. But the challenge is that munis, generally speaking, are perceived as a as a lower margin business, right? So yeah. it's it's an area to cut. It's an area to reduce. And so yeah. so ultimately, we all kind of have to navigate a little bit less liquidity. Um, but at the same time, we think that's okay because we think that. Liquidity is, is something that folks pay for that they never use, generally speaking, in the mini market, right? It's like, well, I, I go to the asset class because I have the safety and security of the underlying principle, and I can get access to that money if I need it. But for the most part, I never need it, right? Yeah. And most of the investors that we work with generally stay invested for at least five to 10 years, if not longer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the institutional investors may need to stay in there from a corporate cash perspective inside of seven years. But for the most part, longer-term investors, by definition, are going to benefit from not accessing that liquidity, right? Yeah. So, and that's our point, saying, look, the, the 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 bonds in our marketplace that are the most liquid are the AAA-rated bonds. They're the AA-rated bonds. They have the narrowest bid to offered spread. They also have the lowest yield, right? So, if you're an investor and your objectives are to get the highest yield and the highest return over time, and you have a longer-term investment horizon. It's, it benefits you to own something other than AAA and AA rated securities because you're getting paid for the fact that you're not utilizing that liquidity. Because I'm not suggesting that a AAA rated bond and a BAA rated bond, let's say, have the same degree of uh, bid to offered spread, right? There's, a, there's less demand for BAA rated securities because it requires credit work. It requires credit research. Just because they generally don't default doesn't mean you can't, you, you don't need to do underlying credit research. You do, right? Yeah. And, and, because credits do deteriorate. They may not default, but they could easily go from BAA to double B to single B, right? We've seen that happen before. So lightning is almost as bad as a default in some instances. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so and we want to avoid that as well. As you yeah, of course. So um, so but what we're saying to clients is hey, hey, look, 
take advantage of the opportunity that presents itself. So that, that's an important shift in the marketplace. There's ongoing dialogue and education. I think clients, you guys did, a, uh, there's a piece on Bloomberg recently where they were talking about the advent and uh, the increase, interestingly enough, in transaction costs, right, for retail investors. I think a lot of retail investors generally don't understand that, right? What is the transaction cost? What is a commission? What is a market? What is a sales credit? We as an as a independent manager, can talk openly about that. And we're not, and we talk openly about our own fees. We're fully disclosed and fully transparent. Um, and so we're trying to help investors understand the broader market so they can make the best decisions for themselves. And oftentimes that comes through education, right? Um, it comes through just sharing knowledge and information about a relatively opaque marketplace. It's tough when you're in a space, as you guys know, over 60,000 individual issuers. Um, in, in theory, it's really difficult to get your arms around the meeting market, broadly speaking. Uh, we don't even do it, right? Like but people come to us and say, hey, look, you're a boutique firm. How do you cover 60,000 issuers? And we say very candidly, we don't, right? We don't need to, right? We have a core group of, of uh, issuers that we know and are very, very comfortable with and followed for decades and we, we think are appropriate for our clients. We don't need to own every single credit in the market to deliver very attractive returns. Um, so that's another, I think, specialization that we have that maybe others might might think differently about. But that's important because we think that it's better to know the credits you hold than own every credit that happens to exist. Absolutely. You uh, you mentioned liquidity earlier. You know, we're seeing that dealer holdings of munis are still hovering near pandemic lows. Oh yeah. Um, do you see Do you see that returning? I think it will return. It's It's interesting because basically. Everybody's waiting for for Godot in a way, right? Like we're all waiting for retail to come back, right? Because when retail comes back, that gives dealers the comfort level that they can take risk on positions and then sell them to a mutual fund or another buyer wherever that retail investor is putting their assets with yeah. a high degree of confidence. When that flow, and you can see it, right? And when, as soon as you see the calendar dissipate, like we've just seen in the last week, spreads tightened up at the back of last week considerably, right? Um, and so we know that the dealer community is pulling back. We can actually call them and say, hey, what's your bid? And we'll see it actually in their bid. We can also see like we did last week, but, oh, the supply has gone away. They don't have to worry about proving a price or somebody might come and issue a bond that they happen to own at a substantially wider yield. So they're now more comfortable taking risk. So, so that's something that we, we often follow very closely. So our market still tends to be very, very technically driven. Um, and so we follow that. Do I expect liquidity to improve? Um, yes, but it'll be when retail returns, right? Because that will give the confidence to the street to actually step in in a significant way. Um, and they just haven't been able to have that confidence recently. All right. So I know we're running on time here, but I did have one more question. Obviously, what's coming up in the next year is extremely important for a lot of reasons. Um, but we have a presidential election, and, and I think that is very impactful to our market in different facets. Um, you know, obviously, tax rates being you know the largest impact to our market and i think to a lesser degree is like you know the exemption actually being under threat but you know what are your views on those two topics and you know to sort of wrap up everything today yeah so the outlook for the election is a significant one uh it's one we're following closely the politics of the moment obviously demand us to pay attention not just at the federal level but the state and local levels and maybe even more so um, so I think the thing that we're encouraged most by is that divided government from a municipal bond perspective is a very, very good thing, right? It requires compromise, and in some cases, the stalemate themselves actually beneficial. 
Um, as, as it relates to the tax exemption, we've, we've been down this path before. There's been you know, a recurring uh, theme of the potential of losing that tax exemption. Um, we're fairly constructive on that likelihood being very, very low. Um, and the reason why we say that with a high degree of confidence is because the nature of munis is they benefit multiple constituents, right? The constituents that they primarily benefit is the actual citizens of the communities that are doing the public works, whether it's clean water and sewer, whether it's power, whether it's mass transit, student loans and education, you name it. The reality is um, it could be housing. There's so many other areas of the country that benefit from the lower interest costs that municipal bonds enjoy by virtue of their tax exemption. So governors love them, local elected officials love them, Communities love them because they build schools and recreation and parks. And so you've got that really powerful constituency that does not want to see that net interest cost associated with delivering those services increase dramatically. And then you have the other side, right? You have the investors themselves, whether they're high net worth investors, and many of them don't even have to be now, right? In some cases, if you're further out the curve, you don't need to be a high net worth investor to benefit from the tax exemption of munis, given the ratios there are still beneficial. Um, but the reality is that, that individual investors benefit from what we know about munis, their safety of principle primarily, but also that that tax-free cash flow is something that they can take confidence that will get every single year until their bonds mature, or if they have a manager, they know that there's going to be good value being delivered there. So, so you've got multiple constituencies that want these things to exist and want them to exist in tax-exempt form. Um, it's, it's a fairly obvious statement that there are certain political, uh, um, let's say parties, but I will say individuals who, who support the idea of doing away with it because they feel as though that municipal um, tax, the tax-free nature of municipal bonds benefits specific constituencies that they don't support. Um, you can call them the blue states, you can call them whatever you want, but the reality is New York, California tend to be really big issuers of municipal bonds, but you know what? So does Texas, right? So does Florida. So, so the reality is that, and, and as we think about the infrastructure investment that's going to take place over the next 10 years, we're going to need the municipal bond market to do it, right? And so we've seen good examples of, of select PPPs, public-private partnerships that have been successful, LaGuardia and others. Um, you know, that's a good thing, um, but it's not going to be the entire market, right? And that will, so our point is that you know, over 100 years of experience shows the municipal bond market does a really good job of providing funding for these projects, and we just don't see it going away anytime soon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew Clinton, Clinton Investment Management. Appreciate you having you here, and uh, have a great Labor Day weekend. <laughs>